I am Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're examining China's commitment to addressing climate change and prospects for U.S.-China cooperation. In the past decade, China has increasingly viewed global leadership on climate as a central aspect by which to increase its economic and political influence abroad. After the United States left a leadership void in climate diplomacy by withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, China became more vocal in its support for international climate cooperation and seized the opportunity to boost its credibility in this space. In the past year, China has announced its dual carbon goals of reaching peak emissions by 2030 and achieving carbon neutrality by 2060. Leading up to the 26th annual UNFCCC Conference of Parties (COP26) in Glasgow, Chinese President Xi Jinping also announced that China would not build any new coal infrastructure abroad. However, China still faces significant challenges in establishing legitimacy as a global leader on climate. China produces and consumes more coal than the rest of the world combined. Even with ambitious domestic energy policies, China will need to overcome substantial hurdles to achieve its goals under the Paris Agreement. Recently, with the closing of COP26, China signed a joint declaration with the United States on enhancing climate action in the 2020s. What's next for China with respect to climate change, and can China work with the United States? To discuss these topics and more, I am joined by Dr. Joanna Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of Energy and Environment and Director of the Science, Technology, International Affairs Program at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Dr. Lewis has two decades of experience working on international climate and clean energy policy with a focus on China. She is also a faculty affiliate in the China Energy Group. At the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Joanna, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joanna. So let's start off with the question of why do we care about what China does with climate change? So China is by far the largest emitter of, of carbon dioxide emissions in the world.、Uh, it's responsible for about thirty percent of global emissions, and China's emissions are rising, and so you know when we talk about the world trying to achieve a 1.5 degree global goal, which means you know essentially avoiding the most dangerous impacts of climate change、um, by not increasing global average temperatures to more than you know one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of the decade. We cannot do that if China doesn't turn its emissions trajectory around. And you know, right now, China has said that its emissions are going to continue to grow this decade, and then after 2030. They will turn them around and reduce emissions very sharply by mid-century. But you know, no country has done that. No country has been able to turn the ship around, as you say. You know, there's just so much motivation or so much momentum going in this direction. In order for us to really to really believe that China can can reduce its emissions, we need to see dramatic changes this decade. And so. You know, it's really important to understand what China's climate policies are, what they can deliver, and you know what this means for energy policy, for the economy, because China is just such a crucial player in all of this. You know, in not just the international climate negotiations, but just in the world's ability to meet these global climate goals. 
Given the crucial role that China plays in climate change, can you give us some background into China's commitment to fighting climate change? How committed is China, and when did China become invested in reducing its carbon emissions, and why? Well, I think we've seen an increasing commitment from China over the past couple of decades, and you can point to you know a combination of policies that China's been essentially. Scaling up、um, over the last two decades, related primarily to promoting clean energy and energy efficiency, both of which have the potential to reduce carbon emissions. And then, even more recently, we see specific carbon mitigation policies, like carbon intensity targets. You know, the recent introduction of China's new carbon market、um, in the context of the national cap and trade system. And then, of course, you know, also we've seen. Uh, sort of continued ratcheting up of goals that China's been submitting in the context of the international climate negotiations. You know, really going back to Copenhagen in 2009 when they sort of made some initial pledges, and then、um, in Paris in the context of their NDC, and then most recently before Glasgow when they released a revised NDC and, and then a new set of climate targets. So, what is driving China's interest in tackling climate change? Is it concerned that climate change is impacting China's economic growth? Is it concerns of the public health effects of climate change? Could you discuss a couple of key drivers from Beijing's perspective? I think that there's multiple drivers. You know, I think I mean clearly from the public's perspective, climate change is sort of linked to broader environmental protection. Clean air, right? Things people can sort of see and feel. But I think, from a broader political perspective within the country, climate change is more viewed as a, an economic growth strategy for the country. So you see, you know, very strategic industrial policy that targets clean energy industry development, for example, which really is sort of. You know the cornerstone of China's climate strategy, and so you know this has really been, you know, as I mentioned, really two decades in the making. Where I think when the the government sort of realized that clean energy technology industries could be really the you know targeted as strategic emerging industries along with other high tech sectors, you know these are technologies that not only China will need, the rest of the world will need. You know I think they saw the writing on the wall and realized that they could be the manufacturer and ultimately the innovator. You know within wind, solar, you know and other important low carbon technologies. So. I really think that a lot of the motivation is a green growth strategy, and it's it's an industrial strategy that sort of goes along with the broader economic development goals of China's leadership. And so that's in some ways a positive thing that climate change is sort of linked to such high level priorities, you know. Whereas environmental protection, you know, will sort of come as well, but it's sort of always been, you know, less of a, a high level priority in China compared with with economic growth. Let me ask a clarification question. So you mentioned that this interest in addressing climate change has been around at least two decades. So what we're seeing is not just interest in the past couple of years under President Xi Jinping, but there seems to be a large consensus among the Chinese leadership that this is what China seeks to promote, both domestically but also internationally. I think that's right. I mean, I think you've seen, you know, really again going back to the sort of mid two thousands and is really where we started to see clean energy, energy efficiency goals make its way into the five year plans. You know, two thousand five was 
when China passed its first national level renewable energy law. And that was really what kicked off the last, you know, 15 plus years of growth in renewable energy development in the country. And then also the development of the industries that now really supply renewable energy markets all over the world. So, Joanna, you mentioned a couple of the major policy changes and measures that China has implemented since 2005. Are there any in the past couple of years that really stand out? Well, I think in in China, you know, when we talk about sort of climate policy in China, I think it's important to understand that, you know, we're not really just talking about climate policies and the way we we sometimes think about them in other countries. You know, climate policies, we usually limit that conversation to like a carbon tax or cap and trade. I think, you know, within China, half of China's carbon dioxide emissions come from the industrial sector and another 40% from the power sector. So that's 90% of emissions, you know, specifically from industrial manufacturing, electricity generation. So, you know, the most important climate policies for China are the ones that target those two sectors. So, you know, in the industrial sector, that's things like making cement and iron and steel and other heavy industry more efficient, you know, making. And so, you know, we see a lot of important policies targeting those sectors in the power sector. Any policies that promote renewable energy over fossil energy are, are, are climate policies, right? So if I, you know, could maybe highlight one in each sector, there's been many over the last couple of decades, but within the industrial sector, one policy that has really been very successful and has sort of set the model for a lot of other policies going forward was the Top 1000 program, which was implemented last decade. And this was, you know, policy that basically took the top 1000 energy consuming enterprises in the country and, you know, put in place all sorts of energy efficiency incentives and benchmarks to really try to make those, you know, thousand top energy consumers more efficient and and thereby that ends up reducing uh, their emissions. That program was later expanded to the top 10,000 program. And so you sort of see these policies be scaled, you know, throughout the country. In the power sector, I think one of the most effective policies was the feed in tariff that was put in place first for wind energy and then for solar energy. And again, this was a policy that sets a preferential tariff for electricity generated from wind turbines or or solar panels later. And these policies, which have now been phased out because they essentially were no longer needed, you know, they were put in place to kind of get these technologies going in the market, give them some subsidization so that they could compete with uh, the existing uh, sources of electricity on the grid. And it was very successful in in really helping uh, wind and solar scale up uh, within China. Great, thank you. Let's now turn to some recent developments on China's climate policy. Recently, President Xi Jinping announced at the UN General Assembly that China will end new coal-powered financing abroad. Do you know what drove China to make this decision? Some argue that John Kerry's climate diplomacy with China influenced this decision, while others point to the falling price of renewable energy compared to coal as the main driver. What is your sense? 
I think that, you know, both factors came into play. I mean, I I think, you know, we already know that there had been no new investments made by China this year, you know, by the, the public development finance banks in coal abroad. And so clearly, like this, this was the direction that investments were already headed. So, you know, why is that? I mean, I think this is driven both by price signals in the falling cost of renewable energy, but also just the desire of the host countries, you know, in terms of sort of increasing pressure for them to to in- increase the amount of clean energy they're developing. I mean, almost all the countries, you know, for example, that have been receiving large amounts of investment through the Belt and Road Initiative in coal power have ambitious renewable energy targets in place domestically. And many have committed to renewable energy goals in the context of the Paris Agreement. So, it didn't make a lot of sense for a lot of these countries to be building coal plants when they've pledged very aggressive renewables goals and signaled that that's where they want to head. And then I think it's just becoming higher risk for anyone to finance coal plants in a world where, you know, many, many countries are already, you know, sort of pledging carbon neutrality by mid-century. So I do think that these factors were important. But on top of that, there's also certainly been mounting diplomatic pressure We saw over the summer when the G7 agreed to phase out coal and and Japan, you know, among them had been a a large financer of coal plants abroad. We saw South Korea also make such an announcement, which had been another large um, supporter of coal abroad. You know, the G20 made similar pledges more recently, you know, and, and you you saw China, you know, just increasingly being isolated. And, and so I think that it was timely for President Xi to make the speech at the UN General Assembly and, and make this pledge in September um, of 2021. But, you know, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding the pledge, right? And, and so that's going to be important to understand what exactly that means. Joanna, you described uncertainty regarding Xi's pledge. Could you give a little bit more description of what you mean by uncertainty? Also, how significant is Xi's pledge? Well, I think it's going to be really important for officials in China to really clarify the the scope of this pledge and and what it's actually going to mean when it comes to implementation. Um, I mean, I've seen some reports already saying that, you know, China's still going to support investment in clean coal abroad, for example. But what does that mean? You know, you know, the G7 announcement, I should mention, said, you know, no, they would no longer invest in unabated coal, I believe. And, you know, almost all coal plants that are built around the world in this day and age have some kind of pollution abatement associated with them, right? Like we don't build coal plants that don't control for a lot of the, the, the toxic pollutants that people are worried about. But very few coal plants have uh, CO2 abatement, right, which would be in the form of of some kind of carbon capture and and sequestration equipment. And so it seems unlikely that China is saying they're going to finance coal plants with CCS around the world. These are still very expensive for the most part and, and, you know, primarily still in the demonstration phase. So we just, you know, there's a lot more to be learned here. And also, you know, most of these pledges countries are making really only apply to public finance and, you know, most energy infrastructure around the world is financed from the private sector. So 
it's also going to be just really important to understand the role that Chinese private actors and, and you know, whatnot are going to play. Obviously, in China, public and private are are somewhat more intermingled than in other countries. But I think this is still, you know, really not clear. Are we just talking about the China Development Bank, you know, for example, the or are we talking about a much broader set of actors, which we know have a large investment footprint in supporting coal plants around the world? Interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that Xi's commitment might not apply to private Chinese companies. Is that a correct characterization? Yeah, I think it's very unlikely the commitment <laughs> applies to private companies just because I'm in, you know, I don't think any country has made such a commitment. So how has Xi's message and China's pledge been received by countries that are part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, but also more broadly by the international community at large? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see how countries, you know, that had previously received coal finance, sort of where they, what kind of investments they take going forward. I mean, as I mentioned, there already had been some misalignment between sort of domestic targets for clean energy and and coal plants being received from China and other and other financers. And so I think what countries care about, you know, we're, we're talking primarily about developing and emerging countries, you know, throughout Southeast Asia, throughout Africa have been, you know, many of the recipients of, of the coal plants from China. These are countries that need new energy infrastructure. You know, they're growing, they need new power plants. And so, you know, what they care about is what makes sense for their country, you know, how they can actually continue to grow their electricity infrastructure so that they can grow their economies, they can make sure people have access to electricity. And for many decades, coal was the cheapest and, you know, sort of easiest way to do that, even though there's obviously many adverse effects from building coal plants, not just for the climate, but local environmental impacts, health impacts. So, I think that, you know, this is part of a broader conversation about the role of financing to support developing countries in their decarbonization process and their shift to a low carbon economy. And and this is part of the, you know, conversations about climate finance that we hear about at COP26 and in in many other forums around the world. So, Jayanna, you mentioned COP26. I want to follow up on that. In the last few days of the COP26 negotiations, the United States and China issued a surprise joint statement on climate cooperation and announced the establishment of a working group. This was a significant departure from China's stance during John Kerry's climate talks with Xi Jinping, where China emphasized that climate negotiations could not be separated from strategic competition in other areas, and China was not willing to cooperate on climate change unless the overall bilateral relationship improved. So why did China change its approach at COP26? And does this signify a real shift in China's willingness to cooperate with the United States on climate change? I think it is in both China and the United States' interests to engage on climate change. You know, I think both President Biden and and President Xi want to be viewed as global leaders on this issue, and, and they both really see climate change as a domestic policy priority as well. So I think despite clear tensions that persist in the U.S.-China relationship, 
you know, this is one area where we've been able to see ongoing constructive engagement led, of course, by the senior diplomats from both countries, um, John Kerry and, and Xie Jinhua. And they've been able to have these conversations, even as discourse among, you know, other other branches of government and other officials has remained really quite tense. And, you know, I think that this really is in many ways due to the relationship between these two senior diplomats that really was built during the years leading up to the Paris Agreement through the U.S.-China Climate Change Working Group, which was uh, set up back in 2013 and, you know, really set the stage for the 2014 joint announcement between the U.S. and China, where both countries had put forward their NDCs, you know, a year before Paris. And, you know, that's really credited, you know, by many with paving the way for the Paris Agreement in 2015. So, you know, I think this year is has been different, right? I mean, certainly the relationship between the two countries was really different if we sort of look at the parallels and the lead up to Paris versus the lead up to Glasgow. But I think it's it's interesting that, you know, in many ways, you know, Xi and Kerry were able to kind of pick up where they left off, if you will, um, because of the the relationship and the trust and the fact that this is really a legacy issue for both of these, both of these men. So you know, I think that in many ways that the fact that we were able to have a joint statement in Glasgow is, you know, it was a surprise, but it was, you know, very much due to the engagement that was able to happen, um, you know, going back to the start of the Biden administration earlier this year. So uh, John Kerry and Shia have known each other for many years. That's what you're saying. And it's not an accident, right, that these two senior diplomats were sort of put into these positions, right? I mean, I think President Biden, of course, you know, he the position um, that, that Kerry holds is a new position, you know, that we've never had before in the United States, this very high-level climate envoy position that spans the White House and the State Department and, you know, a very large team of experts that are really, you know, leading the international diplomacy on climate change under Kerry. And, and so I think the engagement with China was just, you know, a core part of what, what both Biden and Kerry wanted to do, um, you know, when, when Biden entered office earlier this year. Okay, so that definitely helps in uh, yeah, smoothing some of the tensions in the relationship and making progress in areas that we might not have normally expected progress. Thank you. So could you walk us through the joint declaration? I read it myself, but I wasn't quite sure what were the things I needed to take away, what was really important, and what was not. Could you walk us through how you look at it, what you found most important, and what should we be watching as we move forward? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, the the joint declaration is strategic in that you know, there's not a lot in there that's new, but it basically puts down on paper a lot of things that both countries have sort of said in speeches and in, you know, reported conversations, but had not been part of any formal international climate pledges um, or bilateral agreements. So, you know, for example, you know, China, as I had mentioned, submitted their updated NDC right before COP26. And, you know, when they did that, there wasn't much new in there, you know, which maybe wasn't a surprise. You know, all the targets that were in that document had been previewed by President Xi a year before. And so, you know, I think what analysts have really demonstrated over the last year, ever since China announced those targets, you know, we've run the models and, 
it's clear that, you know, if China waits to peak in 2030 and waits to start to really abate the coal that they are, you know, basically, you know, waits to, wait to peak coal use as well, you know, because we have seen coal use increase in China in the last few years. This is just going to make it a lot harder for the world to stay below 1.5 degree global goal because, you know, what essentially what everyone does this decade, you know, everyone refers to this decade as really uh, the decisive decade for addressing climate change. And that's not just a slogan, right? I mean, that actually comes from the IPCC reports and, and the science, which shows that we have to make very dramatic reductions this decade so that we can reduce emissions, you know, essentially by half by the end of the decade and then get to carbon neutrality by mid-century to avoid dangerous warming by the end of the century. And because China is by far the largest emitter, um, what they do in particular between now and 2030 is just crucial to the entire world being able to get on this trajectory. So, you know, when you read the U.S.-China Declaration, It's specifically, you know, the title is actually about, you know, the 2020s, right? And the 2020s are mentioned over and over again. And that is because the focus here really has to be on this near term action. You know, we can't just kind of wait and see if China peaks in 2030 or doesn't. We need to really start to get emissions heading in the other direction, coal use heading in the other direction in the next few years. And so, you know, I think that was strategic, that that's really emphasized throughout the declaration. There's other things in there that are, I think, significant. You know, probably the biggest new thing is the focus on methane emissions because China was yet to put forward any concrete targets on non-CO2 greenhouse gases. They're not mentioned in the NDC, although, you know, it was clarified that the 2060 carbon neutrality goal that China has includes all greenhouse gases, not just CO2. So, that means that China has to have start putting plans in place to deal with non-CO2 greenhouse gases. And most of China's current policies are focused explicitly on CO2. So I think it's a it's a good area for the U.S. and China to carve out to work on. Obviously, there was also a lot of movement at the COP more broadly on methane and the global methane pledge that China was not a part of. So I think putting that language in here, you know, sort of shows that China will also be at the table in conversations about methane reduction and and non-CO2 gases. And then I guess the last thing I would mention is that the declaration, you know, at the end announces that the formal establishment of a new U.S.-China working group specifically focused on enhancing climate action in the 2020s. So, you know, this is important because there is currently no formal mechanism for ongoing U.S.-China dialogue on climate right now, as there has been in the past. I mentioned, you know, under President Obama, we had the Climate Change Working Group. We, of course, had the the SNED, the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, that sort of you know, forced these periodic conversations on a whole variety of issues, but climate change was always one of them. And because U.S.-China engagement is just not, you know, really happening right now in this sort of broad way, I think this, again, just signals climate is one area where China and the U.S. have agreed we're going to constructively engage, you know, and, you know, this could be to the benefit of the broader bilateral relationship. But if not, like, at least maybe you can make some some concrete progress that could be useful for the broader multilateral process. So those are the things I would sort of point to. And, and just, you know, lastly, I guess the timing 
timing of the, the declaration itself was strategic. You know, it was announced Wednesday night, the second week of COP26, which, you know, if you've been to these meetings, this is a two-week marathon. Uh, so by the sort of, you know, the last couple days of the meeting, um, that's really when negotiators are starting to kind of get to the hard part and they were trying to, you know, really get to the final language on the agreement that would ultimately come out of Glasgow. And so this really, I think, you know, it was timed, obviously, to inject some energy into the the conference, some momentum to really kind of push the agreement over the finish line. And, and we did get an agreement that that I think was, you know, really actually much more than many would have anticipated going into the, the COP. So I want to follow up on one of your points that you mentioned of U.S.-China engagement on climate change. So you noted that establishing the working group was important because until recently, we have not had established channel to communicate with China on climate change. So could you walk us a couple steps back and share with us what sorts of discussions have we had with China on climate change, either in the Obama administration or the Trump administration? So um, the Obama administration, you know, beginning in 2008, put in place a very large number of U.S.-China clean energy and climate change bilateral agreements that had various mechanisms for meetings, workshops, conferences, sort of continued engagement. And, and we really had there were many of them. I mean, I, I, I could give you a list, you know, but it's um, you, you couldn't count them on two hands. I'll put it that way. So, you know, there was really just many, many channels, a lot of ongoing cooperation, you know, both in the technical area and in the more diplomatic space. And yes, under President Trump, almost all of those either came to a halt were defunded, you know, a couple of them sort of um, went on in a very low-key, low-impact way, but again, with very little sort of governmental support and, you know, just obviously climate was a low priority for the Trump administration. There's sort of no way around that. And, and engagement with China obviously took a turn as well during those years. So it just sort of, you know, made a lot of the relatively productive um, bilateral agreements that have been, you know, pretty robust under, you know, the eight years of the Obama administration, you know, they just, they were not able to continue. And so when President Biden came in, I mean, you know, he hasn't like restarted all of the bilateral agreements that were, that were previously there. And, and, you know, I think for good reason, like that, you know, we are living in a different time now, there's different priorities, there are different politics. And so this working group, it's early, right? And so the details are yet to come out, but at least it, it exists now. And, and I think this is a place for continued engagement, you know, not just on the issues in, you know, that were relevant to Glasgow and the ongoing negotiations internationally, but to, you know, the bilateral conversation and what sort of cooperation might happen bilaterally going forward on, for example, clean energy technologies, right? I mean, and I should say, you know, we've been cooperating with China on clean energy technologies, you know, that goes back way before the Obama administration. I mean, this is a decades long relationship with a lot of constructive cooperation going back into the 80s and 90s, you know, with our first, you know, really going back to the signing of the, the science and technology agreement in uh, the late 70s. So, you know, this is this is something we've been doing for a long time, but because of the current um, political context, um, there are certainly many areas where, you know, competition makes cooperation impossible right now. 
but that doesn't mean, you know, we shouldn't be doing anything. And I, and I think there are a lot of areas where we could be working with China. Um, and a lot of those technologies were, in fact, laid out in the April um, U.S.-China climate statement that was released in the context of the, the Earth Day Leaders Summit. So let me go back to COP26. In addition to the U.S.-China joint statement, China was also very active at the conference and successfully pushed to significantly weaken critical sections on ending coal-fired power and fossil fuel subsidies in the final conference outcome document, the Glasgow Climate Pact. So what should we take away from these Chinese efforts? And how do Chinese actions impact its international image, both generally as well as in China's efforts to portray itself as a leader in the fight against climate change? Well, I think, you know, it's important to put this sort of heavily reported on um, change in the final, you know, minutes of the negotiations of the Glasgow Climate Pact in context. So first of all, China gets almost 62% or so of its electricity from coal. India gets about 75% of its electricity from coal. So the, you know, what happened sort of towards the end when they changed the language surrounding coal was they changed the language from phase out coal to phase down coal, okay? And it was, you know, China and India were reported as sort of being the, the reasons behind that change, you know. And both of these countries now, both China and India, have announced carbon neutrality goals, uh, China for 2060, India now for 2070. So changing the language from phase out to phase down, I just would argue, is is not really that significant because, you know, they both have so much coal and they both have committed to carbon neutrality, which essentially you know means you can no longer be using coal unless you're, you know, you have CCS. And so... Essentially, you have to phase down coal before you can phase out coal, right? So I, I, I see this as a compromise that, you know, at the end of the day, got the word coal in the agreement, which had never been in there before, you know, and, and that's really significant for these countries that are just still running the vast majority of their economies on coal. And so I, I, so I see that as a win. I, I think that some of the reporting that kind of casts China and India as, you know, the, you know, as we've seen in other cops, right, is like the you know, it threatened to basically, you know, make make the whole agreement fall apart. I don't think it's totally fair, right? Because I, I actually see that the fact that, that they've agreed to phase down coal and, and put it in writing, you know, in the context of these carbon neutrality goals they've already announced, I see that as a real step in the right direction and, and a real step change from where we were, you know, even a few years ago. Finally, I'll just mention that the language that is in the, the Glasgow Climate Pact on phasing down coal actually echoes the language that's in the U.S.-China Climate Declaration, which specifically says China will phase down coal consumption during the 15th five-year plan period and, and possibly sooner. So, you know, I think it's it's important to note that this language, which was clearly negotiated, you know, all these declarations, every word of these things are negotiated. And so the fact that phase down coal was in that joint declaration, which was significant, because, again, that hadn't been in previous U.S.-China declarations, and that language made its way into the Glasgow Pact. You know, again, I, I think this is intentional. I don't think this was an accident. We saw very similar language, you know, sort of similar use of language that had been heavily negotiated between the U.S. and China in the lead up to the Paris Agreement also make its way into the final Paris Agreement text. So, you know, these are these bilateral agreements can be diplomatic tools 
to really, you know, push forward these global climate agreements as well. So, Joanna, I'd like to wrap up this podcast with a relatively provocative question. So on climate change, folks have raised the question of do we really need to cooperate with China or could we compete with China? Some note that competition could also have positive benefits for the international community. So what is your view on this? Do we need to cooperate or could we compete? And a larger question related to this is what is the difference between competition with China on climate change versus cooperation? I love your thoughts on this and we'll use this question to wrap up the discussion. Yeah, I think this is a really important question because, I mean, I get asked a lot, like, should we should we compete with China or should we cooperate with China? Right. And and this is in many ways a false dichotomy. I mean, we've always been competing with China just as we are, you know, have have found areas to cooperate that have made mutual sense to do so. And. And, you know, I should point out, right, like we don't cooperate with China just to help China. Right. And and it's not it's not a unidirectional thing. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the the cooperation we were doing in the 1980s and the 1990s, I mean, it's very different from what we're talking about today. Back then, it was very much about capacity building. China had very outdated energy technologies, outdated infrastructure, decades behind the types of technologies that were being deployed in the West, very little experience with environmental policy, right? So, you know, that was very much about sharing, you know, basic information. China is obviously in a very different place today and is, a, you know, in many ways a pioneer in deploying a lot of the technologies in designing policies that other countries, you know, are, are, are behind in. So, you know, I do just want to emphasize that the cooperation is a two-way street right now. Um, you know, there are many U.S. companies that have benefited from cooperating with China because they've been able to take advantage of things that the Chinese innovation system can provide that the U.S. system hasn't, for example. We see a lot of companies who have demonstrated technology in China because they were willing to support those demonstrations, which have then allowed them to test out their technology, sell it at scale, even back to the United States after that, and sort of, you know, have a market here. So, you know, this is complicated. And, you know, I think that I don't want to ignore the the very real concerns we have over things like intellectual property rights and, you know, protecting U.S. innovation and, and know-how, you know. But uh, again, this is now a two-way street. China also has a lot of um, intellectual property in these areas. And and so I think this is really, it's about doing smart cooperation and sort of mutually advantageous cooperation and, and focusing on things where we can actually learn from each other, but that aren't necessarily about sharing pre-commercial technology that could have major risks for everyone involved. You know, just to give an example, the United States has been, has played a really important role in cooperating on standard setting in China's industrial sector and building sector, you know, for energy efficient standards. And, you know, this has led to major emissions reductions in China. These are areas that, you know, don't really have big competitiveness issues because a lot of the technologies being used here are not emerging technologies. A lot of the cooperation 
is really about things like policy design and, and changing user and consumer behavior, you know, not about kind of bringing sensitive technology over borders or, or whatnot. So, you know, I just think we have to be smart about this. And, and, you know, I'm doing some research now that's sort of trying to sort out what the real risks are of cooperation over the suite of clean energy technologies that both our countries are going to need, you know, to decarbonize in the coming decades. You know, I think there are some areas where, you know, the United States wants to directly compete with China, like battery technology, where, you know, it would be much harder to cooperate, whereas there's other areas, you know, where, I think, you know, we need to be thinking about how to work together because like we, we essentially can't do it separately. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll stop there. But I would just say that, you know, there are ways to design these things that are mutually beneficial. And, you know, and then, of course, the diplomatic benefits, as we've seen, can can be constructive. You know, I think many have argued that China gets more out of this cooperation than the United States or, you know, China's been sort of using the United States to make it look better. Better. But I think that's a, you know, a very simplistic description of what's actually going on here. And, you know, again, these cooperation agreements actually involve scientists who've been working together for decades, have very strong relationships and have been able to see the value of working with experts in both countries. Um, and the same goes for, for the private sector as well. Thank you, Joanna, for addressing this provocative question. We appreciate your insights today. And thank you again for joining us. Hey, China Power listeners, I'm Mike Green, host of the Asia Chessboard podcast, and I'm inviting you to check out our conversations with the most prominent strategic thinkers on Asia as we discuss the hard calls and consequential debates that drive U.S. policy towards this critical region of the world. The Asia Chessboard explores the historical context and inside decision-making process on major geopolitical developments from the Himalayas to the South China Sea. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or at CSIS.org.